Can you freaking believe this? I mean, the fire's right there. And there's people not leaving, and the fire is right here. You see, there's fire like right here, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's time to stop sitting around drinking and let's go and try to save your lives, okay? By now, you've spent hours reliving the disaster alongside the people who experienced it. Go ahead. You've met them on hillsides of fire, inside burning homes, on the paths they tried to escape. You listened firsthand as they tried, in one way or another, to run from the wildfire threatening their lives. Now, it's time to meet some of the people who ran towards it. They're on their way. We have one unit coming up the hill, the other unit's in route there. They came from across Tennessee, from all walks of life. The term hero extends far beyond first responders. It includes all those that gave their time, food, and energy to support everyone fighting those flames. And went into the flames. You know, I was here that night. That's our department. I'm proud of our department. To try and save others. Spencer, I'm looking at building 4,000. The roof burned off of it in the fourth floor. It's engulfed in flames as we speak. These are the heroes of the Gatlinburg disaster. Copy. I don't mean to get graphic. We could hear stuff falling around them. They advised it was getting hotter. It's probably building 4,000 if the fourth floor's on fire. Fire rained down from the hillside beside the motel like a bunch of embers falling from the sky, huge, look like lava. Every minute and second counts for people fleeing for their lives. From WBIR Channel 10 in Knoxville, a series of stories where we look back at the tragedy of the Gatlinburg wildfires, what was lost, what went wrong, and how we've rebuilt since the flames. I'm Robin Wilhoyt. And I'm Madison Stacy. Fire is really close to us. We're going to die in here. Why do they warn us? 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 This is Inferno, the Gatlinburg disaster. It was insane. That was, uh, apparently that was our worst drought in 40 years. Even weeks before the Gatlinburg wildfire, Glenn Corcoran, a pilot with the Tennessee Army National Guard, was battling other blazes popping up all over East Tennessee. The entire region was in the grip of a historic drought in late 2016. Thousands of acres were scorched as far south as Chattanooga. Army helicopters equipped with huge buckets crisscrossed the sky, dumping tens of thousands of gallons of water on the flames. Former 10 News reporter Rashad Hardnett reported from Hamilton County on November 11th. Well, I'm just miles away from downtown Chattanooga, and you can see those mountains off in the distance pretty hazy there. We actually got a chance to see the fires up and close on an observation helicopter. Now, the observation pilots we flew with are from the Army National Guard, and they're trailing behind what are called Black Hawk helicopters. Those helicopters are dumping 700 pounds of water at a time from nearby lakes and ponds directly onto those wildfires. Meanwhile, the observation pilots are mapping out the size and the direction of the flames. The Forest Service first requested the Tennessee Army National Guard's assistance on Sunday, and every day since then, forestry officials have given them new direction on which parts of the state need aerial assistance. The direction shifted north to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park on November 27. Corcoran and two other pilots got the call to target a wildfire burning on the Chimney Tops Trail. It had sparked days earlier. Fire started off, as we say, very small. That's Cassius Cash, then superintendent of the park, speaking with former 10 News reporter Becca Habiger about four months after the Gatlinburg disaster. Well, it was a creeping fire because of the, the, uh, the thick duff that's on the park floor, right? Where all those years of leaf litter that builds a, a big mat, if you will. So that fire was burning very slowly. I think over a two or three day period, it got up to maybe five, five acres. So it really didn't spread until that Sunday. 
when the winds really came in um, much earlier than anticipated. Crews dropped water on the fire using helicopters starting Sunday, Cash says. But the helicopters were grounded once the hurricane force winds whipped up the flames and spread them down the mountain toward Gatlinburg. People in cars and on foot, they were desperate for help to beat the fire to the bottom. As you've learned throughout these stories, there's blame and hurt and pain that linger in the hearts of survivors three years later. But those people Robin mentioned remember the kindness and courage of first responders from that night. After hearing testimony now from many survivors, that's a common thread in their stories. It was like that for Linda Morrow, the woman who ran for her life down Baskins Creek Road. You met her back in episode two. Happily, eventually, the uh, Tennessee State Troopers showed up, the special unit. Trooper Stephen Barkley was part of that special unit. I was working up in Campbell County, and I received a phone call from my strike team leader, Lieutenant Opal, and she said that our team had been activated. Trooper Barclay and his team rushed to Gatlinburg, not knowing what to expect. They were met by thick smoke and flames. We received a phone call from our dispatcher stating that uh, there was people trapped on a road called Baskins Creek. And I'm not from Sevier County, so I had no clue where that was. Lieutenant Opal, she knew where it was, so she took us to it. Um, we actually passed a fire, it wasn't a, a fire truck, but it was like a like F-150 or F-350. Uh, once we turned on that road, as soon as we turned on that road, I mean, there was homes to the left, buildings, businesses to the right, they were just engulfed. Uh, we went there probably 200, 300 yards, and uh, we had to stop. There was utility poles down, utility lines, we didn't know if they were hot or if they were not, um, but we could see in a distance there was vehicles that were in the road and we heard uh, a horn that kept going off and off and off, so uh, we dismounted from our vehicles and uh, we went on foot. Uh, once we did that, uh, we located, I don't know if it was anywhere from uh, six to nine vehicles uh, where people uh, ranging from uh, there was a baby all the way up to uh, elderly people, and they were they were trapped. Uh, there was a big tree that had blown down or fell, fell down, and um, they, they just they were trying to push it out of the road, but it, they, were, they were not having any success whatsoever. Linda Morrow was one of the people desperately trying to make it down the mountain. Trooper Barclay remembers exactly the moment he saw her. She was in a minivan. I remember I, there was a sliding door, um, and I I talked with them. You could tell that they were they were I don't want to say panicked, but just in a sense of shock. I mean, I think everyone was in a sense of shock that night. Um, but she told me um, that she had, had uh, some burns to her, uh, I think, to her left foot, or might have been right. I'm not for sure, but either way, uh, she said that she was in some pain, and I asked her, I said, okay, well, I identified who I was, and I told her, I said, we all, we, we've got the lady, we've got to get out of here, and she didn't think that she could walk, so I knew that she was in shock, she was in pain, so I started asking her just general-based questions, trying to uh, deter her mind, try to get her sidetracked a little bit, and I asked her, I was like, okay, well, what's your name, how old are you? And I've never asked this to a lady because it's not polite, but I asked her, I said, how much do you weigh? And she told me, and um, I was like, okay, well, um, so we started uh, getting everybody out of the van. I picked her up. I didn't do a fireman carry. I just picked her up like you would pick up a child uh, that was asleep. And uh, we started walking back down the road. Uh, and again, you had homes and buildings that were completely engulfed. Uh, the smoke was, was ridiculous. I mean, you had ambers uh, being blown from homes that were getting hit with. And uh, I started getting tired about, about halfway, three-quarters way down. And I knew that every time I was stepping, it was jarring her and it was causing her to hurt. So I had to stop for a second. And I looked at her and I said, man, you lied to me how much you weigh. And 
she she laughed. I didn't do it being disrespectful. I did it just trying to again to I guess deter her mind. And um, we picked her back up and we started. We made all we made all back down to our vehicles and uh, got her out. Whenever I become a state trooper, I knew the the full job details. I mean, I've had car fires. I've had big truck fires. Uh, I've never had anything to this magnitude whatsoever. And we went back up just to make sure that any homes or any other vehicles were uh, uh, were were vacant and empty. I think the fear was almost uh, post. Uh, we've been afterwards uh, in, in the in the heat of the moment of, of it all. Uh, you just think you know that that's somebody's either mom or dad or sister, brother, husband, wife, and you you just you don't want them to be alone. You want to, you want to get to them, you want to help them and, and, and get them uh, away from whatever the threat or the danger might be. Now afterwards, whenever you watch the videos and you see pictures, you're just like. Holy cow! You know, it was it was very uneasy, very uneasy moment. After the rescue, Linda started the healing process, and Trooper Barclay returned to his regular duties. But seven months later, the two reunited. For us, in that situation, it was ground zero where um, we met the first time. It had to be surreal. It it, it was. Um, that was the first time that I had been back uh, to uh, Gatlinburg since the fires. Um, it looked, uh, it was really different. Um, where we had went, uh, it still looked, uh, it looked like a, like a war zone still. I mean, they were trying to rebuild uh, on the Strip. They had done a lot, but uh, on your back city streets or the back roads, it was still... Uh, still looks again like a war zone. It's almost like we were in a movie and we pressed pause once I got her to safety and once we reunited, we just hit the play button and minus the fire. Um, but I remembered, um, I asked her, you know, how she was doing, um, how her, I think, I can't remember if it was her right shoe or left shoe, I think it was her right shoe that she lost. That's where she got either second or I think it's secondary burns on her foot. Um, but uh, just to, to see her, knowing that, you know, I helped her get out, it was a very humbling experience. It was, it was something that I will never, ever forget, and I will, I will always cherish. Connections between first responders and the people they rescued weren't uncommon, especially in the year after the wildfires. Reunions with first responders and survivors were sometimes a vital part of the healing process. It was like that, too, for Reba Williams, the woman trapped in the elevator at Westgate. After her rescue in 2016, she met the firefighters who pulled her and her husband out of the elevator. And we've played before the 911 calls Reba made on November 28th, but those weren't the only ones made from Westgate Resort that night. Several units were on scene, assisting in the rescue. And what first responders describe seeing from the ground is harrowing. I'm still here with you, Reba. We're updating the fire department, okay? You got multiple, multiple units coming up there to you. Operations command. We're here at Westgate assisting with this uh, elevator rescue. We just kind of wondering where the rope rescue was. Okay, we're not up to date on which um, buildings are still standing up there at Westgate. She did tell us multiple times it was building 4,000. We understand now that that's on the ground. We did speak to her multiple times. We've lost contact now. Spencer, I'm looking at building 4,000. The roof burned off of it in the fourth floor. It's engulfed in flames as we speak. Building 5,000 is still standing. We did a primary search of that building, found nothing.
copy. I don't mean to get graphic. We could hear stuff falling around them. They advised it was getting hotter. It's probably building 4,000 if the fourth floor's on fire. That was where they got on the elevator. They started going down. They're not sure which floor they ended up on. Wayne, can you enforce what you do? We're getting it. We're getting it. Come on, this is past force one. Go ahead for command. Yeah, we were dispatched up here to Westgate to build 4,000. We made it on scene up here, and there's several units up here advising that that building's completely on the ground now, and they're just standing by. We need to return to staging. Go for command. Yep. They should be other engines and stuff sitting down at the bottom of Westgate. We need them to the 4,000 building staff. We think we may have located those people. Uh, sounds like they're still still there. We're, going, we're attempting to rescue this time. We just need another engine to come up and we'll need plenty of water. Copy. 4-11, you copy direct. Well, you might want to see if we got an EMS unit that's close. Also, uh, come here, we need an EMS unit. Yeah. Command copies, we're getting an EMS, stand by. Super 9 is coming up the hill. That engine 32 heading the Westgate also if you need more water and myself uh, crew about four rehab. Today, a couple from Birmingham, Alabama, had the chance to thank the firefighters who rescued them after they were trapped for hours inside an elevator at Westgate Resort. Their building was literally burning to the ground around them last week when firefighters found them. WBIR 10 News reporter Madison Wade shares their story. As building after building at the Westgate Resort in Gatlinburg burned. And this whole place is on fire. One couple from Birmingham, Alabama was trapped in the flames inside an elevator for hours until help arrived. I couldn't imagine being in an elevator as long as they were. Matt Burrell is the fire chief at Andersonville Fire Department. It was kind of chaotic. We didn't know the area. He was one of the several firefighters sent to save Joe and Reba Williams. Probably the longest 15 minutes of my life. They found the Williamses inside an elevator between two floors, the building burning to the ground. They pried the door open and took the couple to safety. Just kind of unbelievable for the moment, and then we got back to work. Days went by, and they heard from other people, incorrectly, that the couple died. And then we call on Facebook, uh, your story, I do believe, about them making it, and it, it pepped us right back up, and we were all happy and grateful, and uh, thank God they made it. And today, for the first time since their rescue, they spoke to the Williamses. Hi, my name's Lonnie Poor. Hi, Lonnie. Uh, who, and who are you? I'm a firefighter at Andersonville Volunteer Fire Department. 
Yes, ma'am, I did. Reba Williams tells her rescuers she thought her life was over. We had said our, our goodbyes to each other, and I saw Jesus in the white light, but he wasn't ready for us yet. These firefighters were in the right place yeah. at the right time. If it wasn't for God and this, the situation lining up the way it did, it could be a different outcome. While many lives were lost that night, these two were saved. Thank you. You guys just put your life on the line. I mean, everything was going crazy that night. With firefighters handling multiple emergencies as fast as they could throughout the city, other units had to step up and help. The severity of the disaster necessitated that crews who had already taken a vow of service to their city needed to go above and beyond that call of duty. 911, where's your emergency? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm on the spur located in the 2014 Galbert, Tennessee, uh, where all the wildfires are going. Okay. Uh, we need, we've got fire surrounding our vehicles right now. We need to get moved through this. We're in bumper-to-bumper traffic heading into Pigeon Forge. I was hoping you'd contact Pigeon Forge Police Department or somebody. We've got to get moving through here. There's fire everywhere. Stay on the line. I'm going to let you talk to him. Don't hang up. Thank you. Down trees weren't just a problem on Baskins Creek Road. They were a potentially fatal reality across the city. That was especially true at the Spur. It's a road connecting the town of Pigeon Forge to Gatlinburg. Fire engulfed both sides of that road, and downed trees not only trapped people trying to evacuate, it stalled emergency services who were trying to get into Gatlinburg. As they were trying to get into town to save lives, they were caught in traffic. Transportation crews worked to clear the trees, but they'd cut one, clear it off the road, and another would fall in its place. So the daunting task of clearing those roads was left to the Tennessee Department of Transportation. I got to the spur, which is the road between Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, and uh, we pulled up right at the spur coming out of Pigeon Forge, and I looked over and the whole mountainside on fire, and that's when I wrote, oh man, this is not good. We trained for emergencies. We trained for clearing roads in emergencies. We train for getting roads back open when they're closed. What you don't train for is, you know, the, the life or death situation, the realization that, you know, you're in a real emergency and, and it's ongoing. This isn't the aftermath, this isn't, isn't the cleanup, this is, you're right in the middle of it. Power lines, light poles are burning. You got a, a tandem piece of equipment that you are driving, trying to get through under power lines and trying to get through to, to try to get trees out of people's way so they could get out of there. It was scary, but I knew it was something that had to be done because you, you, you know, you're dealing with people's lives up there, so you didn't want to not do it. Getting out of the truck to cut a tree, you'd have to walk backwards because the wind would be blowing the embers and the uh, wood chips and everything in your eye and you about get knocked over the wind was so strong i think they said it was 80 something mile per hour gusts and i i believe that got out up there at one point and it's uh, heavy and thick but the smell of propane was real heavy in the air and i was just i was kind of like you know is this like this whole mountain's going to explode or something but i grew up in gatlinburg so that was i was, I was definitely full of um, uh, emotions besides uh, being a little frightened. You know, I was expecting the worst, and when I got there, I seen some pretty, pretty bad things, buildings, cars, ambulances, police everywhere. It was chaotic. There is fire all around us. It's hot, it's smoky. Everybody's panicking, freaking out, trying to find a way. So you've got to have the courage to do what you do and that's to move trees at any cost, any way possible. We went on up, just past Wiley Oakley, past the Gatlinburg Visitor Center, and all of a sudden we see another big tree. We saw the tree come down, and it was a big evergreen. It was a really big tree. That was when it hit me how bad the situation was. I'm standing there and I can't see 100 feet in front of me probably because of the smoke. That, that was as scared as I've ever been, I guess, on the job at TDOT. Um, so, you know, the firefighters are trying to cut the tree out of the road. They get two or three chainsaws stuck in the tree because it's flexing so much because of the way the wind's blowing. My contractor pulled up and said there was a tree down behind us. So at 
at that point we were blocked in, had a tree down in front, had a tree down behind. And I'm trying to start my chainsaw and I hear a horn blow or I saw flashing lights or something. And I turn around and there's the T-Dot dump truck. And that was Bradley and his dump truck. And I got up on it and I said, you know, I don't care what happens to the truck, to their plow, get the tree out of the road. We've got to get all these folks to Gatlinburg. That was a very, that was a scary moment. There was an oak tree probably four, five foot around, and I had to use my plow as a, as a weapon to move the tree. You know, chainsaws was hung up. There was no other way to get around it but to use a plow truck. And it was, in my eyes, it was scary. I, I was scared, just like everybody else. But I done what the duty calls for. That was Douglas Tarwater, Matt Harris, Benjamin Price, John Oakley, Terry Bradshaw, Carter Molden, and Brad Elledge with TDOT. But even first responders recognized that not all of the heroes from Gatlinburg were in uniform. Some were members of the community, thrust overnight into an impossible situation. While some people risked their own lives to save others that night, one man was at a prestigious art school trying to save the very heart and soul of Appalachia. This was an area rich uh, in Appalachian uh, craft. Bill May is the executive director at Aramont School of the Arts. It's an art campus that's situated in the picturesque hills of Gatlinburg. There's something almost magical uh, about seeing people communicate and learn together and help each other and respect each other. So it's a, I always like to say that, yes, it's about objects. Yes, we're about making things. But it's, it's really a lot more than that. It's... Um, about people learning to respect uh, and learn from each other and work together. When the order came for the school to evacuate on November 28th, the artists and residents, staff and faculty, were forced to leave precious and irreplaceable pieces behind. You know, obviously seeing the smoke and smelling the smoke. And um, like everybody, you know, we I wouldn't say we were complacent, but we, we had no idea um, you know, what was going to actually happen. Everyone except Bill. He stayed even as the fire drew hauntingly close to Aramont's campus. He didn't flee. He didn't panic. Instead, this English major found himself a ladder and took things, specifically a hose, into his own hands. Central Dispatch. Aramont is on fire. Hughes Hall is on fire. 556 Parkway. It's about to take the whole campus if you don't get somebody up here right now. Okay, we're updating the fire department, okay? Thank you. Remember, May doesn't have any firefighting experience. He's not wearing protective gear. Yet there he stands, watering what he can of campus down. He's one man and a measly hose against a wall of fire. 911, where is your emergency? Aramont School of Arts and Crafts is it's about to be completely burned to the ground. Just please tell me what to say. I'm the only one on campus. I'm the executive director in the main building. At where, sir? Where of our door? Aramont School of Arts and Crafts, 556 Parkway. I've been calling for an hour and a half. Okay, sir, we've, everybody's been calling in Sevier County. That's the reason it's not gone through, and I apologize about that. But okay. The school, Aramont is about to be burned completely to the ground. Okay. Right I here will, in the middle of Gatlinburg. I will notify the fire chief right now. What is your name? My name is Bill May. You can call me back on this number. I'm at the main building trying to save things. Okay, Mr. May, I will call and let him know. Thank you. Uh-huh. So I uh, I got some hoses out that uh, started to wet down some of the uh, some of the historic structures, which are primarily wood, and uh, went up to the artist and residence studio, got a ladder and a hose, and tried to wet down the uh, the roof so that maybe the fire wouldn't uh, wouldn't leap over to the roof. And then I saw a glow up at the far end of campus, so I got in my car and drove up. Um, to the end of campus where we had our have our had our uh, our maintenance shed and our two two of our largest and newest dormitories. And when I got there uh, to you know to my horror, the maintenance shed was completely destroyed, completely burned down, and one of the dormitories was completely engulfed, and the fire was had already begun to spread to the to the other dormitory building. Um, 
you know, at that point, I realized that there wasn't uh, my, my fire hoses, my my uh, you know, my Don Quixote tilting at windmills wasn't going to to change anything. Finally, just dawned on me that you know there wasn't who was I to, and, and it was futile. I mean, in other words, I, I you know I could say this, I could say that, I could load how many things can you load in your car, and and what do you choose? What do you pick when you're faced with that? Um, so I finally just uh, I quit pulling things. I had a big pile on the floor, and I finally just you know sat down next to the pile and started to cry. It's only once his wife calls him to say that their own home was under a mandatory evacuation that he leaves the campus to the flames' mercy. Uh, the school is, 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 is a living thing, and it lives in the context of the culture and the context of the community. And Mike obviously wasn't a little overwhelmed, and whatever was going to happen was going to happen. Before daylight even has a chance to break through the treetops the next day, Bill May is winding through the mountain's hills, through checkpoints and road blockages, back to Aramont's campus. So I was able to get back on campus. It was still uh, still dark. And, uh, you know, I drove into campus and not knowing what I would find. And as my headlights, uh, as I drove through campus, my headlights would, you know, hit, hit buildings. And I just took a sort of a, to myself, a, an inventory, you know, this still stands, this, this, this survived, this building survived, the red barn, the wood studio, the staff house. And then finally I got up to the end and there was the red barn and it was still standing. The buildings he risked his life to save were spared. The question is, so why did I, why did I, why did I stay? Right. Uh, well, it, it's not a really by any means a, a, what I would consider an act of heroism. I think, you know, when you've committed yourself to something um, and you're faced with something like, like this, um, a, a real threat, I just concentrated on was there anything that I could do uh, to, uh, you know, to, 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 to save things, to make things better. Very emotional for me, obviously. Um, this school means a lot to me. Once the citizens of Gatlinburg were able to evacuate to places of safety, there was little they could do but wait and watch as the fire did what it wanted with their home. Will our houses be intact, they wondered. Would Dollywood be destroyed? What about downtown? Would anything be left? One of the places that sparked the most panic, though, was Ripley's Aquarium of the Smokies. Ripley's Aquarium also in the uh, line of threat tonight, much of Gatlinburg under evacuation. Many folks have been concerned about the animals at Ripley's Aquarium. There are 11,000 animals in that aquarium, some of them endangered species. Into the night, flames inched closer and closer as the animals inside swam away in their tanks, unaware of the danger. Their caretakers waited until the absolute last second and were forced to leave them all behind. So they're hoping they're protected. Um, they were evacuated last night. The workers had such a hard time leaving their beloved animals. We spoke with Ryan DeSears earlier tonight with Ripley's Aquarium. He's joining us once again. Well, there's no good news. Uh, that's the, the best way to, to, to put it. The imagery was so bad, we were like, it's just going to be wiped out. And we were waiting for that. And it was like, oh, that's going to be too bad. The danger that those animals faced is something that sticks with John North. Because you have innocent, unprotected life and nothing can be done to save it. That's kind of what I was going through my mind was, what a shame if something happens to that aquarium because there is nothing that anybody can do to save those animals and they didn't move there themselves. That's where they live. And we're going to continue to work on an update with the general manager of Ripley's. We talked to him early this morning. And I was probably the first citizen back in the city. If, if not the first, I was darn near it. That general manager was Ryan Desir. He's worked at the aquarium for 25 years. Like thousands of others, Desir evacuated the city with his wife and son the night of the fires. But unlike everybody else, he makes his way back into the city of Gatlinburg at 5 o'clock early that next morning. We were blessed by rain at about 2 o'clock that morning. And then 
if that rain hadn't come, I don't know what would have happened, but we were getting horrible reports out of the city. Uh, the school had burnt down, this had happened, that had happened. A lot of it was wrong, as, as happens in chaos. So at five o'clock in the morning, um, I took, I had an aquarium vehicle and I went back in and you know, there was roadblocks set up everywhere. He makes his way through the charred and apocalyptic city. It was surreal. There was fires everywhere smoke all over. Where he sees, right before his eyes, a still-standing Ripley's Aquarium of the Smokies. I, you know, it'll bring tears to your eyes. It was like Scarlett O'Hara seeing Tara. I mean, it really was. The aquarium, every shark and turtle and penguin inside, survived. They didn't lose a single animal. The fire made a clean path for Ripley's, but ended up hitting the aquarium's massive concrete parking deck And that acted as a fire barrier. The flames rolled off the sides. So when Ryan gets there, the joy of seeing the aquarium still intact is tempered by these pockets of fire, which he works with a crew to put out. We got fire extinguishers out. We were putting out small fires all around the exterior of the building. What had happened to us with that roaring fire coming down Greystone Heights was that the parking deck behind the aquarium had acted as a fire break. It's a big concrete, brutal-esque structure. It had acted as a firebreak, and the fire hit it and rolled around at the sides, avoiding the aquarium. And we were putting out those small fires that had rolled around the sides there. And as you can imagine, alarms going off everywhere, dead silence in most places, explosions in areas. In, in talking to people, there's kind of a collective sense of it didn't get the aquarium. Right. You know? Not only, it wasn't even really just a symbol of a sanctuary, it it was. It was a sanctuary. In the weeks after the wildfires, Ripley's also became a staging area for different emergency services. They had one working phone, showers, ventilated filters that made the air breathable. In those weeks, the aquarium turned from an oasis for animals into one for first responders. And, And we had a huge area set up for first responders to come in, get dry sock, get the visine, get new clothes and then go back out, do an eight-hour shift, come back, get a hot meal, sleep there, whatever they needed to do. The aquarium's a perfect building for that. There was no question about that. I mean, the air was clean on the inside, and, you know, if you were a, a, a fireman and you had been out in hell battling a fire for eight hours and you came in and you got a piece of our meatloaf and you got some dry socks and you could sit there and watch our sea turtle for the next hour, that's good. That's, that's a pure good. And there's very few pure goods in this world, right? But seeing sea turtles swim by you when you've been through so much, that's a pure good. And take a moment and just relax and enjoy it. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And it's not a fault issue. It's not in anything. It's just sometimes it happens. It's the reality of life. His family had planned a vacation for December, a cruise, but they push it back after the fires. He can't leave, 10% of his staff doesn't even have a home. So he stays, helps, and they push their vacation back to early January. No big deal. The family, Ryan, his wife, son, and mother-in-law, fly out of Knoxville, and they get off at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in South Florida. And you think this disaster is gonna be the worst until the next one hits. For Ryan and his family, the next one was just weeks away. And instead of flames, it involved gunshots. Well, I can hear the percussions of the gunfire. The authorities have had a panic situation here today. Pop, 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 pop. They're grabbing luggage when Ryan locks eyes with a young man who pulls a pistol from his waistband and starts killing people. Friday afternoon, authorities say an airline passenger named Esteban Santiago arrived at Fort Lauderdale's airport, retrieved a gun from check luggage, and started shooting, killing multiple people in a baggage claim area and injuring others. And then a herd of people just started running down the the way and trampling over people. We had the distinction of being in the first mass shooting of 2017. That was the distinction. And um, you you can't believe it when that happens to you. You know, you're just sitting there like everybody. You're on your phone. You're waiting for your luggage to come out. Everybody does the same thing, right? Our luggage carousel happened to be in a corner of the airport in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, you hear something that sounds like a firework. 
I turned around. I see a young man coming at us with a handgun. He's firing at everybody in his path. It's kind of surreal. And you just never think it's going to happen to you until it does. And so the first thing that happens is you you just hit the deck. You just go down, right? Luckily, we had one one piece of luggage come up, had come off. And my wife and mother-in-law hid behind that. I dumped down behind a smart cart thing. And I was kept thinking if I could get my son, if I could find my son, I could pick him up and I could throw him through the luggage flaps. It was his son's 12th birthday. Because there was nowhere to run. We were in a corner. I said, but if I could find him, I couldn't find him anywhere. And this guy's just, he's killing people right and left. I mean, it was awful. Um, the lady, an older lady, within a few feet of me, she took a bullet. And uh, her husband, who's an older gentleman, I learned later, they're celebrating their 60th anniversary for a cruise. He, he, I think he had a small chance to say goodbye to her before she passed. She was maybe 90. So... You know, this is a month after the fire. You know, you have this incident, two unreal incidents within a month. You know, your system starts, it's too much, you know. And you try, you know, just get through it as best you can, right? Like you just, we were in that airport. They thought there was more shooters. They thought maybe somebody on our flight was in cahoots with this guy and he was enraged. And I think he killed five and wounded many others. And they were all around us in a circle. You know, it just happened right there. And so, you know, you see all these kind of, folks that were doing nothing but going on vacation that's all they were that's their crime they were going on vacation and got shot sorry yeah did the mode that you were in Mm -hmm. in gatlinburg in that chaos did it was it like a switch I was perfectly calm in both situations. It, I have more emotion now than I did then. Um, I was a good witness for them because I saw everything. In the case of the airport shooting, I saw everything. I videoed everything. I could perfectly describe what happened. I had been through the Gatlinburg fire, and I had been through the same thing. I'm, it, Yeah, I mean, it just... I, I think what I was thinking was what have I done wrong in life to deserve this? And then then you think, maybe I've done a lot right. I've survived both. Like, you think both ways, you know? And I think, okay, I'll never do another mass shooting. I said, the odds of it happening again now are, you know, being struck by lightning twice, right? So that was my thinking after that. But we were all just so exhausted and distraught. And I I mean, I don't know how to explain it. You've got post-traumatic stress and you don't even know it at that point. It was an awful experience in every way. This, the fire wasn't personal. The shooting was personal. And, and, and this is a man purposely trying to kill us. The fire was just a fire. It does what it, a fire does. But a madman with a gun is a whole different ballgame. It's very personal. And, and it happened to my son. I couldn't protect him from it. Those experiences, the Gatlinburg wildfire and the Florida mass shooting, changed Ryan forever. If he goes to a restaurant, he doesn't sit at booths because you can flip a table over and hide if a shooter walks in. But he also never leaves the house without a charger. When he fled Gatlinburg, everyone brought a phone, but no charger. It also changed how he places blame when disaster, whether that's personal or communal, strikes. Because he saw how even people who build entire careers learning how to navigate disaster situations can't quell the chaos. We all process things differently, right? Like, it's just the way it is. And nobody should ever make fun of somebody else's grief or stress or any of it, you know? You see people and you want to get upset with them. Well, you didn't lose your house in the fire, but you're... You're claiming you got PTSD. Well, who am I to say that? Maybe they do. Maybe they were trapped by burning trees and didn't know what to do. I mean, it's it's it was a horrible deal, right? So they, you know, you got to develop an empathy for folks like that. And it, it, yeah. it kind of sounds like your reaction since both of these things. One is a very, like you said, a personal trauma. Yeah. And the other one is a very sort of collective Exactly trauma. right. Exactly. And it seems like your response has been to kind of validate every response that people can have. Yeah. You kind of see the very... I, I do. I see the, the fire bothered me from a human standpoint. From I saw the devastation it caused to my fellow people, my citizens, the people I've grown up with, and I felt for them horribly. It didn't bother me particularly. 
my life was affected only in as much that my business was affected because it was shut down and the people around me were affected, but I got lucky. My house didn't burn and I was the guy in control of that situation. I could control things. The shooting was personable and out of my control. There was nothing I could do. There was nowhere I could run, nowhere I could hide. You know, they tell you run, hide, fight. It's fight. A lot harder to fight when somebody's got a gun pointed to your head. You know, it's, it's easy to say. It's a whole, when you're in the situation, you drop to the ground and you start crawling. When faced with disaster, to Ryan, people aren't heroes or villains. They're just human. We act how we act. We escape or we don't. And we can't go on with our lives pretending as if nothing happened. We can only rise up and get through it the best we can. You, like all people, you want to be in control of everything you do. And the reality of it is, is there's times in your life when you're not. And all you can do is the best possible thing in every, every decision you can. And sometimes that decision is not a good one. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it impacts a lot of lives. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you, you, you just do the best you can. You know, I wish I was a robot and I could go back and say I make every, every decision based on a calculation that it's going to be the 99% best efficient. You know, you just, but humans don't do that. And in the immediate aftermath of the fires, the whole community of Gatlinburg would come together to rebuild, as Ryan said, the best they could. Glenn Corcoran and his team surveyed the damage from the air. The, cell, the problem was the cell towers were down. There was, no, there was like minimal cell coverage on anything. Communications down, that was one challenge. Finding precious water to fill their buckets, that was another challenge. There just weren't many large bodies of water nearby. But we ended up finding there was a, a member in the community that had a, a pond out there in his yard, and we started pulling out of that. And again, a, you know, shout out to that guy because he was an awesome member of the community there. He had garden hoses pouring into his pond. It's foundations of homes burnt to the ground one after another and it, it's getting really disheartening really quick as, as, as more as we're, we're going back and forth going you know tell me there's something we can save in here and I mean neighborhoods just leveled and you know my boss calls back for a, a situation report and I'm like I, this it looks like Taji Iraq uh, I remember when we rolled in there for the first time and it was the home of the Republican Guard and these barracks are just in rubble and I'm like Somebody didn't like somebody down here, man, because this place is gone. And they're like, yeah, that was Saddam's Republican Guard. It, 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 that's what this looked like. It was burning, there was smoke everywhere, and just nothing left but timbers. Uh, my boss and I find a house, and it's, uh, it, it, it's trying to light up, but it's doing okay. The one next to it is burning, it's just burning it to the ground. And so I'm like, all right, if we can get this guy knocked out, the one's burning, we can keep this guy's house alive. So. Uh, we start dumping on it, and meanwhile, I get a call from the uh, the operations center to say, "Hey, you got to move to this 911 house right now." I'm like, well, we got one, and so on. When we found, I'm like, nope, nope, new one. So we punch in what they're calling for. Got my iPad. You know, we're I don't know 3,000 feet. You'd think we'd have service, and uh, we're flying into what it's telling us to do. My boss takes. I'm, I'm losing everything. My boss takes it on his. And we fly out in the middle of Gatlinburg. It's like, there's nothing out here. And he's like, wait a minute, you're not going to believe this. We turn around, and we're flying right back to the house that we left, uh, that we found. And it was because, again, the, the, the cell communication, the, the fact that things aren't getting relayed, it was just a mess. And so, Corcoran has no idea how many homes he saved. He was on a mission, and it was personal. You can do this overseas, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, whatever. Okay, and you can somewhat disassociate because you're, okay, in combat, bad guys, got it, there's good out here too, but you know, it's not, it's not your backyard. It, this is now your backyard. These are your neighbors. I mean, th this, is, this is your community. And so, and so now you're, you're doing this with almost a tear in your eye of like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and there's a whole new sense of urgency, which in itself, can be very dangerous to you as a pilot um, because you can get emotionally involved in what it is you're doing and tend to do things 
that you maybe wouldn't do on a normal basis. So you have to kind of weigh all these things in your head of like, all right, got it. I feel bad for these guys. This is really a bad thing, but I still need to be extremely cautious of what I'm doing because I'm flying a machine that... There were some houses, I noticed we got closer down here, that, that were burning a A year after the fire, 10 News anchor John Becker loaded up into Corcoran's helicopter to get a bird's eye view. Flying about 2,000 feet above Gatlinburg, Corcoran calls on his fellow pilots to descend toward a stand of trees to see if a house with a green roof he tried to save survived the flames. So we were having to come in here, sneak around these trees to try to drop down to get underneath that porch. So what's it like to see it today? It was pretty good. Now, three years later, Corcoran's flying days are behind him. New homes are on those scorched foundations. Charred businesses are rebuilt and thriving. And tourists, record numbers of them, are back. But even more so is the fact that the community growth, you know, the fact that people were building again. I mean, hotels that were, like, wiped out, people were building back up. We've been in there since then where it's just, it's almost like, in some regards, because I think, you know, there's some scarring that's never going to go away, you know both physically for the mountain as long as you know as well as emotionally spiritually and everything else i mean just the fact that this has gone through here but you know the again this is a this is the volunteer spirit this is this is our community i mean look at you know just what dolly parton alone did these are my mountains my valleys these are my it was the most heartbreaking, sickening, scary. It's just you can't describe the feeling. Well, I freaked out because they were telling me the Smoky Mountains were burning. I was on tour, and we were on stage. When I got off stage, they said, you know, the Smoky Mountains are burning down. And I thought, what are you talking about? My home in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee is someplace special. But wildfires have affected many of the people, my people, who live in those beautiful mountains. In the days after her theme park was barely spared from the flames, Dolly Parton put her words of support into action. She helped the people living in her Tennessee mountain home get back on their feet. These are my mountains. This is my home. But how did they do it? That's next time. Final episode of Inferno. Inferno is a podcast from WBIR Channel 10, a Technic company. This episode was written and hosted by Robin Wilhoyt and Madison Stacy. Editing by Brian Holt and Madison Stacy. Executive producers Allison Duff, Tanya Burke, Lauren Hoare, Jeremy Campbell, and Madison Stacy. Associate producers Katie Palippo and Daniel Bignot. Original reporting contributed by Rashad Hardnett, Michael Crow. Leslie Ackerson, and John Becker. For more on Gatlinburg's loss and recovery, and to hear extra audio that didn't make it into the show, visit the Interactive Inferno page at wbir.com forward slash Inferno Podcast. And we'd like to give a special thanks to the Tennessee Department of Transportation. Portions of their own documentary called The Gatlinburg Wildfires, the T.Dot story, was used in this episode. For the full video, head to t.news on their YouTube page.